from Hammer Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Alan Anderson will join us to discuss After the Ice. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the Arctic Ocean is one of the most important bodies of water in the world. Situated at a strategic location among numerous countries, filled with countless natural resources and wildlife, and home to numerous indigenous groups, it is also an extremely sensitive indicator of the changes occurring in the global environment. But what will the world be like after the ice goes from the Arctic? Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Dr. Alan Anderson. Dr. Anderson was a research biologist, publishing director of New Scientist, and the former D.C. Bureau Chief of Nature. He has penned the new book, After the Arctic, Life, Death, and Geopolitics in the New Arctic, where he discusses this issue for a general audience. Dr. Anderson, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. Uh, and I think it's really a very fascinating book, After the Ice, where you talk about all the sorts of issues surrounding the Arctic Ocean. I'm wondering if you put into broad terms, what are the issues in, in the Arctic? Well, the central issue, of course, is that the ice is disappearing. And two years ago, when I started to write this book, people were saying all the ice in the Arctic Ocean could disappear in the summer, uh, around 2100, which was still quite a long time away. But now scientists are saying 2013 to 2030. In other words, the time when all that ice is going to vanish has come forward a lot. There was a catastrophic loss of ice in 2007, and now the ice is thinning and vanishing at a really uh, terrible speed. So that's really the central issue. Uh, the ice is going. What was once you know, a great cap of shining white house at the top of our planet is turning into black water. And that's going to have enormous repercussions for the, the creatures that live up there, for the people that live up there, the Inuit on our side of the Arctic and the, the reindeer herding people on the other side. And then it'll have enormous implications for people who see dollar signs in their eyes when they think about vanishing ice rather than worry about the environment. There's the oil industry wanting to move in, the shipping industry wanting to move in, and the military to some extent wanting to move in. And finally, I write about in the book, the Arctic is sending us a warning for the future. This climate change is coming to the rest of the planet. But it's also threatening a bit of revenge, because when the Arctic really changes, it's going to start changing the rest of the planet in some quite serious ways, which we're going to regret for a long time. So in a sense, the Arctic is really the harbinger of changes to come. Yes. So uh, at one level, you can say, if you imagine looking at the Earth from a satellite and summers of 20 years ago, 10 years ago, uh, you'd see a great cap of white ice at the top of our planet. And in a decade or two, it's just not going to be there. And that's an area that's about one and a half times that of the whole United States. I don't think you can get a bigger warning than you know, the top bit of the planet going from white to black to tell you that something is going on in the world. 2007, there was a sudden and unexpected collapse in the, in the ice, and a lot of it vanished very quickly. Uh, and that's the point that we, we realized that the ice had been growing thinner and thinner over the years. That's very difficult to measure. What satellites see is the total area of that ice. 
because it had been getting thinner, it had been getting vulnerable to sunshine, winds, and so on that push it around. And in 2007, we had a very sunny summer up in the Arctic, and it suddenly just wiped out this thin ice. And we realized for the first time just how serious this mess is. And that's when scientists got a really big shock, because after that catastrophic collapse, the level of ice left was what scientists had predicted for 2056, and it was occurring in 2007. You know, so 50 years early, we'd reached this point. And that uh, really shook everybody up badly. Uh, must already be having uh, tremendous repercussions on the wildlife. Yes, I mean, it was the real reason I wrote the book was uh, I had just such a big shock. I, I went up to the Arctic for, for no particularly good reason. I just happened to get an invitation standing in for somebody else to take a trip up north in the northern part of Canada. And right after I arrived there, I, I had bad jet lag and I stayed up late. And from the ship, um, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the night's light in the Arctic in summer, I saw my first polar bear. And I was just so excited. I was watching it for half an hour and totally absorbed in that bear and its world and thinking what a wonderful creature it was. And then a wildlife biologist joined me on the, sh the ship deck and he had a telescope and he explained to me that polar bear's you know, not going to live more than six months. If you look closely, it's starving, it's thin. The reason it's pacing the beach is it's searching for anything to eat. Uh, and the reason was there's just no ice nearby where it could go out and hunt seals. It needs that ice to hunt seals. Uh, and that story you know, just totally shook me up. So I decided to get to the bottom of it and write a book about it. Just sort of a reflection of what's going on even further down the food chain as well. Absolutely. What's happened is as there's less ice, the polar bear can't get out onto those really quite uh, rich seas underneath the ice to hunt for the seals. And the seals themselves need that ice to have their pups build the den in which they hide and bring up their young. And as a result, there are fewer seals. The bears can't get out there to hunt seals. And the bears simply starve to death as a result. So it really, really takes out both the seal and the bear. Uh, then there are a few other really charismatic creatures of the Arctic that I like that uh, are getting into very deep trouble as the ice goes, and the, the walrus and the, the narwhal are too, the narwhal being that wonderful beast with the horn, the, the unicorn's horn, the long, curling, pointed spike on its head. This is so remarkable. Does it not make an impression on policymakers or as just sort of oblivious to it? Well, I think it has in that the, uh, the United States Geological Survey did a very powerful analysis of how long the polar bear might live. And they were using these older and slower models of the ice disappearance, not, not the really fast ones that we now know are more true. But even with those older ones, they said the, the polar bear will be gone almost everywhere by 2050. And that did result in the polar bear getting a listing as a, an endangered species, and that helped to get more action to protect it. So there's some action, but really the point is if the ice goes, the creatures that depend on ice to live are just not going to survive. They may hang on in a few little corners here and there in the Arctic, but without that ice, uh, they can't live. And it's going. The one thing that I, I say to climate skeptics who sometimes say, well, there's really no global warming, I just say, take a holiday in Alaska. If you, <laughs> if you take a holiday in Alaska, you'll come back persuaded. We don't need to do numbers, just go and look. <laughs> <laughs> it's that striking, huh? <laughs> it is that striking, because, uh, you know, up there you see not just this, the ice isn't there anymore, and you'll meet lots of Inuit people who'll tell you the ice used to be right up to here, and now I can't see it over the horizon. But you'll also see the melting ground, the roads buckling, houses slumping because their foundations have melted away, and in a few places, 
whole villages washed away by the sea because there didn't used to be a sea with waves to wash against the shore. There used to be ice. And when you have storms now and, and waves, uh, whole villages are going and they're having to be relocated. So they'll tell you pretty strongly up there. You won't, you won't go away without believing. <laughs> you actually talk a lot about it, but the native people who live up there, I mean, how are they adapting? Well, they're very adaptable people in that they're hunters, and uh, in the very far north, hunting is very important still. It's not the whole of their life like it used to be, but it's very important. And like any hunter, they're terribly aware of their environment, and they're also just very good at fixing things and finding ways around problems. So they are hoping that as the things they hunted in the past disappear, that something else will come along. They're hoping maybe they're going to be more fish if there's more open water. Now the whales, seals are going. But, you know, that's, it's a very, very unsure thing whether that will happen. I have visited some of these Inuit hunting communities, and tremendous shock the first time you go into a hunting community and you see sort of heads of animals, heads of a narwhal and bits of a whale lying around on the shore and people cutting them up. It's, it's not, not what you see in your local supermarket, but it is pretty difficult to know what they're going to do when those animals go. Mm. They're hopeful, but they're just that kind of people, always believe they can find a way. <laughs> Are there invasive species coming into warmer waters? Yes, there are. Of course, what is happening is the old Arctic is dying, uh, but a new Arctic is being formed. So it's a transformation, really. The Arctic is going from a icy area to a seasonally icy area, just have ice in winter. And so it gets a lot more like some of the more southern areas we have on our planet already around the uh, Gulf of St. Lawrence, these places where there's ice part of the year only. And in those areas, oh, more southern species live, there's various kinds of fish and so on. And they're all pouring up towards the north now. So, that, so the north is becoming more like an extension south and the old Arctic is dying. And I explain in the book, you know, the new symbol of the Arctic, the symbol of this new oceanic Arctic, is going to be the killer whale. The killer whale is going to be the top predator of the open water. Polar bear will be toppled from its throne as the king of the Arctic. And killer whale is another pretty frightening creature. Perhaps uh, none more frightening than the uh, humans who are now taking interest in believe will want to mine the resources of the region. Yes. As the ice opens up, it does make it easier for oil companies to go in there and look for oil and then later on to exploit it. Uh, over on the Russian side of the Arctic, and you've got to remember, if you look at the top of the world from the top, Alaska's very close to Russia, just a, f a few miles apart, in fact. And Canada and Russia just face one another across the North Pole. The Russian side of the Arctic, they already have really gone for taking oil and gas out of the Arctic Ocean. They've built already a number of platforms out to sea, and they're trying to build one at the moment 600 miles out into the Arctic Ocean. That is one terrific achievement if they pull it off, because this is a very hostile environment. So they're completely going for it. On the U.S. side, in Alaska, the oil companies want to go into the Chukchi Sea. That's the north of Barrow, Barrow being that whaling town that's very north of Alaska. And at the moment, the environmentalists and the Inuit whaling group have really stopped them through legal action from going ahead. And I very much hope they will never go ahead with that offshore oil in Alaska. How's the Arctic actually divided up? Well, there's five nations that surround the Arctic Ocean, that long stretch of Russia, then we've got Alaska, Canada, then Greenland, which is the, basically Denmark, and then finally Norway's got a small bit at the top of Europe. And they've all got 
a slice close to their shores that no one particularly disputes as the current laws on the sea provide nations with 200 miles out from their shores. So though that's a pretty secure, and most of the oil and gas is in that 200-mile zone. So the oil and gas isn't such a big fight. Uh, there's been a lot of stuff in the press about an imminent battle, but that's not so true because most of the stuff is safely owned already. But all those nations are trying to push their boundary beyond 200 miles out into the Arctic as far as they can possibly go. In, in Russia's case, right across the Arctic hmm. and up to the North Pole, which is only just off Greenland. Hmm. Recall they claim that they had a little stretch of land that went beneath the ocean that's continuous with their, their main body. That's exactly it. The United Nations rules for figuring out whether you can claim some more is whether you've got any kind of shallow land attached to your own land that goes out under that sea. It's got to be pretty shallow. And there's this one ridge of mountains going right across the Arctic. It goes all the way from Russia to the north coast of Canada and Greenland, the so-called Lomonosov Ridge. And the Russians claim this ridge, which has got a Russian name, is a, just a straight continuation of their territory under the sea. And they want the whole lot. <laughs> the Americans do not agree with some of their interpretations, I've got to say. <laughs> yeah. No, no. It'll, I think it'll get worked out peaceably, but you can't be sure. Right. The sort of Arctic region has been previously patrolled, as you point out, by nuclear submarines from both the U.S. and the, the Soviet Union. Yeah. And we, we wish that we'd heard about it a lot more earlier, you know, because both the U.S. submarines and the Russian submarines had a lot of information about the thickness of ice above their submarines, because uh, it was very important for them to know both the sea bottom and the ice above. And their data, you know, they knew pretty early on that something was changing, but they couldn't release that data to the public because it, it would have said where their submarines had been traveling, and that would have really helped the other side try and figure out how to detect them and where they go. So we had to wait until really recently to get that very, very important data. Mm. And that's helped us to understand that the ice is getting thinner. You know, the submarines could see that. Mm. How are these issues being dealt with? Uh, you know, right now is the uh, UN Climate Change Conference. Uh, are they starting to look at uh, this issue? Yes, they are. I mean, they're certainly, one of the things on their mind is that the, a very convincing example of climate change is the disappearing ice. But the kind of cuts that are under discussion at the moment in Copenhagen really aren't big enough to save the ice. The ice has already started to really slip away at speed. And there's a, there's a vicious feedback loop that kicks in, as I'm sure you know, when that white ice turns to dark water, it soaks up the sunlight, soaks up the heat, and the water warms and melts more ice, and then there's more dark water, so more heat, so there's this feedback loop that pushes it to disappear. And that's kicked in, and so it's very, very hard now for us to, to stop that ice disappearance. So although it's on people's minds in uh, Copenhagen as a, as a symbol, uh, not many people think we can really halt it now. It's going to be one of planet's climate disasters, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really beyond the, the so-called tipping point. It's it gone beyond, exactly, yeah. It's gone beyond the tipping point. You know, of course, what climate scientists tend to say, those are the ones who care about the ice, well, if, you know, if we make... If we, get the, if we get the world climate back on track, that ice will come back eventually. It, it may be a century away, but eventually it will return. So, you know, let's not, let's not stop thinking about it. Well, what is the future of the Arctic uh, after the ice? Well, it'll, you know, the, the Arctic itself will be this, uh, you know, seasonally icy sea with a different kind of set of animals in it, dominated by the killer whale at the top there. 
the Inuit people who live around the Arctic, if if they simply suffer a loss of their hunting, a loss of you know their roads and houses, they're going to be in a very very miserable state. And the worst situation would be they simply depend on welfare from the south, and, and this could really really happen. Uh, another possibility is there is some oil and gas exploitation, and people living in the Arctic get some cut of that and are able to really then deal with their own problems and, Im- and improve their lifestyle. But they'd only want that if, if this oil and gas was being exploited really sustainably, not damaging the environment. So they've got to have a very strong voice in the exploitation of the Arctic. If that happens in Greenland, Canada, and the U.S., and Norway, it, it certainly could, uh, then they may be okay. Uh, over in Russia, where the, the reindeer people live, people who live by herding reindeer, frankly, the oil and gas people uh, don't need to consult them in any way, whatever. <laughs> it's a different system. So they have a, a kind of philosophical attitude, both there and in Alaska and in Canada and in Greenland. Every place I've heard the indigenous people say, well, we've lived here for many thousands of years, and you may be here for a hundred years, but you'll be gone and we'll be here forever. And one day, you know, this world will return the way we knew it. I hope they're right. <laughs> I hope so, too. <laughs> we are really slightly out of time. I'm just curious if you have some final words regarding uh, After the Ice. I think those are the really big issues, and I'm just hoping that we'll see something at the Copenhagen Conference that's good for the world generally. Uh, and the other thing I'd say is I do believe, being a scientist myself, that we can come up with really effective technologies to tackle global warming that won't make this transition to a new kind of energy economy that painful at all, because we've just got so many smart, creative people. They, they just need to get some help to get on with it. Hey. I believe in people's genius to overcome this, absolutely. I, I second that as well. Well, the new book is called After the Ice, uh, Life, Death, and Geopolitics in the New Arctic. Dr. Anderson, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And you were just listening to Dr. Alan Anderson discussing After the Ice. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. I see trees of green Red roses too I see them bloom For me and you And I think to myself What a wonderful world I see skies of blue And clouds of white The bright blessed day The dark sacred night And I think to myself What a wonderful world I think to myself What a wonderful It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Mm-hmm. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, cold as ice or hot and on fire. Mm-hmm. 
So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you would rate them as cold as ice or hot and on fire and maybe a little reason why. Dr. Anderson, you're ready to play the game. Okay. All right, here we go. Person number one, cold as ice or hot and on fire, Tiger Woods. Right at the moment, he's normally cold as ice, but right now he's hot and on fire, isn't it? <laughs> My God, poor guy. It's amazing how much of a temperature swing that one was. <laughs> yeah, I think a uh, total flip in the last few weeks. <laughs> well, number two is uh, the Apple CEO, Steve Jobs. Oh, yeah. I mean, he is one cool guy. I mean, he's got to be one of the coolest people on the planet. So cold as ice in a very, very good way. But he's uh, certainly set the planet on fire. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> All right. Number three is Mr. Environmentalism himself, Al Gore. Well, when I was a correspondent in Washington, I used to cover Al Gore's speeches and met him quite a few times. And he, he used to be a very thin guy then. And now he's uh, very... Well, am I being rude to say he's a little bit large? Uh, so I think he's, he's I'd, I'd put him in the, in the ice department because uh, I'm, I'm not too satisfied about his own personal consumption. Okay. <laughs> Certainly not a zero carbon footprint. No, he, he's not. No. His, heart, his heart's in the right place, but I think he's got to work harder at doing it himself. <laughs> uh, all right. Number four, it's talk show host Jerry Springer. Oh, yes. Jerry Springer. Right. Yeah. That's a wild character. Yeah, yeah. Well, hot, I'd say. <laughs> You've gotten him overseas, Jerry Springer, have you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, know, we know all about him. Oh, dear. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm miserable. <laughs> all right. And, and finally, number five, cold as ice or hot and on fire, it's uh, the president, Barack Obama. Oh, yeah. Well, he's absolutely hot. I mean, over in uh, Europe, you know, everybody absolutely loves him. And it's very interesting to come to the U.S. and realize there's already quite a lot of doubt setting in about him. And I guess that's a, a backlash against the very, very high expectations he came to the job with. But he's still hot in Europe. We love him still. All right. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Anderson, I want to thank you again for uh, sticking around playing the game. And, of course, talking about your book, which is called After the Ice, Life, Death, and Geopolitics in the New Arctic. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much indeed. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.